Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Neil Valili, author of Utilitarianism, Neoliberalism and the Production of Uselessness. We discuss the role of utilitarian thinking in the development of capitalism, how utilitarianism has collapsed into futilitarianism, and the impact of this pervasive sense of futility on our individual and collective sense of well-being. Thank you so much, as always, to our brilliant patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, please support us at patreon.com slash pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Neil Valili on the concept of futilitarianism. Hi Neil, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today? I'm good, thank you Grace. Thanks for having me. Good, it's great to have you here. Today we're going to be talking about your book, Futilitarianism. And I was wondering, what was the question that you were trying to answer with this book? Oh, that's a very good opening question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it was, uh, yeah, the key question I was trying to ask was kind of looking around at everyone and the sense that everyone seems to be trying to this idea of maximizing utility trying to make themselves as useful as possible trying to you know working endlessly or trying to get a job the kind of labor of unemployment gaining an education getting into debt doing so coming out no jobs so on and so forth trying to name this experience as as a a form of entrapment in the pursuit of kind of meaningfulness. So trying to, so the, the main thesis of the book is that we, what has happened in the kind of neoliberal period is that this idea of utilitarianism, which stems from kind of late 19th century, um, or sorry, early 19th century, where supposedly if we all individually maximize utility, this will lead to a society for the, with the greatest happiness for the greatest number and my argument really is that what neoliberalism has shown is that utilitarianism has always been a kind of flawed ethics and neoliberalism has kind of released the flaws in that ethics and shown that actually while we all maximize utility it's it's used to lead to the what you could even call the greatest unhappiness of the greatest number so as we all maximize utility on an individual level um our collective social and economic conditions seem to get worse and so I think that's what I was trying to name with this concept of utilitarianism and I think it's something that hopefully some lots of people can recognize as, as kind of rife in our society at the moment. So utilitarianism as a kind of as, a, as an ethical framework is it just a bit of a cop-out kind of ethics because you've got this kind of statement at the at the kind of foundation of it which is you know we should all maximize our utility and then somehow you kind of get around through to oh and also we should maximize the utility of society often via oh and by the way just by maximizing your own utility you can then maximize the utility of everyone else yeah. around you is it really ethics or is it just a kind of convenient 
way of translating something that we feel is true onto a broader ethical framework. That's a real. I, I that's a very succinct way of describing exactly how I feel about utilitarianism. I find utilitarianism to be quite remarkably simple concept, especially in the work of, of Jeremy Bentham, the kind of inventor of what we think of modern utilitarianism, and yet a very powerful um, ethics, precisely because of its simplicity. I think yes, this idea that it's a cop out is certainly true in a sense that it allows people to to believe that that if they maximize their own individual utility and it leads to their happiness, that somehow this is adding to the overall happiness of society. And it's quite easy to see how under conditions of capitalism that people will simply maximize utility and as Bentham kind of lays out in his work, Bentham draws a very straight line between the accumulation of money and happiness. So under a condition of capitalism, it's very clear to see that people might pursue kind of accumulation of money on an individual level and use that as justification to to argue that this is for the benefit of the wider society. And yeah, so I think on that level, of course, it's a kind of cop-out. But it's one, it's a cop-out that, that has... Given capitalism on a kind of intellectual level, um, some legitimacy, um, a legitimacy that I think has then led us into this period that I now describe as kind of futilitarianism. So you mentioned Bentham there. Talk to us a little bit about where Mm. the concept of utility comes from and also why has it become so central to the social sciences? Yeah, so for Bentham... His philosophy is based around what he called the principle of utility, which is essentially, again, another simple concept in his work. It's essentially, he describes it as a property of an object that produces pleasure over pain. And this eventually grew into the greatest happiness principle. The the most moral course of action is the one that generates the most happiness for the greatest number of people. So in that sense, utility for him is a kind of consequentialist ethics. But he... What his project really stands from was a desire to measure happiness. And when he came up with this idea, the idea that happiness could be measured but was a kind of revolutionary concept. But for us now, in, in a period of kind of data, statistics, surveys, it'd be hard to convince lots of social scientists that happiness is anything other than measurable. And Bentham, he spent a lot of time trying to work out how we could actually measure utility. He initially thought about measuring pulse rates and he got rid of that idea and eventually comes up with with money as the best judge of utility. He says something like that the thermometer is the instrument of measuring the heat of weather, the barometer for air pressure and money is an instrument for measuring pleasure and pain. So it's quite clear, as I kind of intimated earlier, that it's... It's easy to see how this can cross over with capitalism. But I think there's another fundamental problem for utilitarianism is about who gets to judge what is useful or not useful or what is pleasurable, what is happiness. And because utility, although Bentham seems to suggest that it is a neutral or objective concept, of course, we all know that utility isn't. It's wrapped up in social, political, cultural practices. And it's, it was clear in Bentham's era 
And it's clear now that it's those in power and say the capitalist class who get to judge what utility is. And I often, for that, I often say that that's, there's a reason why Marx calls Bentham kind of genius in the way of bourgeois stupidity, because it's precisely that this idea that utility is somehow kind of natural concept that we can all access, that it's not somehow tied up in the kind of power structures of society. Um, it's something that Marx really rips into Bentham on um, in one of his many, many asides that he often takes in his work. That actually neatly brings me on to our next question, which uh, I just wanted to ask you to explain what you mean when you say that the concept of utility is the effect of social relationships. Okay, so when I, I say that, um, when I say that utility is an effect of social re- relationships, what I mean by that is that what we deem useful can only come about in the way that we relate with one another, the way that we behave in a society, the way that we, the the things that we um, exchange with one another, how they either add to our lives or to our collective lives, how they help us, I don't know, it can be anything as simple, you know, produce food or produce labour on some form, shape or form. And so the idea of utility is always evolving in that context. It's evolving through the ways that we relate with another and obviously evolving in other ways with you know technological developments, shifts in, in markets, shifts in economies, so on and so forth. So what I try to get at there when I say it's it, that utility is an effect of a social relationship is to try and wrestle it away from the way that people like Bentham or the way that often now kind of, you know, the big craze of kind of well-being um, measurements and so on and so forth, to try and wrestle this idea of utility away from that narrative where utility is a kind of inert concept that we kind of study, we can just um, measure um, as if as if it just is a dead, a kind of fossilised concept, and to show that actually utility and, and by association, futility are things that emerge from the way that we relate with one another in the world. And as I've kind of, again, intimated already so far, under the conditions of capitalism, utility and futility operate in certain ways because, again, capitalism is is a social system as well as an economic system. Can we talk now a little bit about the links between utility as a concept, GDP growth, and also alternative measures of, in inverted commas, happiness, like the yeah. HDI, what role do these kind of broad social metrics and ways of measuring progress play within kind of utilitarianism, capitalism, neoliberalism? I think probably the best work I've read on this is Will Davies' book, The Happiness Industry, which really kind of charts the rise of these alternative ways of measuring economic uh, success or economic growth, and to show that actually the shift towards well-being or towards measuring happiness doesn't necessarily precipitate a shift away from capitalism, for instance, or or even towards even social democracy. Um, I've written a little bit about this myself recently in the context of New Zealand, where I'm based, because New Zealand's have introduced in the last couple of years to create fanfare, both in New Zealand and abroad what they called the well-being budgets and the first one came in pre-covid um, and the second well-being budget was last year kind of in the middle of the covid crisis 
Um, but I've written a bit about this because uh, in the context of utilitarianism, because when you actually look into the way that, say, this well-being budget is is structured, it's all based around the kind of happiness surveys. The whole system of the well-being budget is uh, based around this idea they came up with called the Living Standards Framework. And the Living Standards Framework measures all these different realms of, of well-being. But they all feed into what they call the four capitals, which are human capital, financial capital, natural capital, and social capital. And it's really clear when you look at this, and um, some colleagues of mine at, um, I work for a think tank called Economic and Social Research at Aotearoa, um, and some colleagues of mine wrote a report on the first wellbeing budget, and they, they, sh- they argued and showed quite evidently that although it seems that these four realms of capital should coexist, to create well-being, it's quite clear that financial capital is the one that takes priority over all of them. And we saw this then with the second well-being budget, which essentially used the idea of well-being as a, a way of kind of glossing over what was essentially an austerity budget. So I probably drifted quite far away from your original question there. But these alternative measurements of economic growth or the health of an economy could on one level be, I mean, any shift away from GDP um, as, as a measurement of a healthy economy is a good shift. But my worry with some of these metrics around happiness is that we actually lock the idea of well-being even further into the logic of capital. So in, mm. the, in the context of the New Zealand version, it argues that the Living Sound Framework says we must grow each of these capitals to improve well-being. So one, you're locking well-being into the idea of growth, but you're also locking it into the idea that well-being can only emerge through through capital, which I know as you might have noticed in my book, a kind of argument that I would certainly disagree with. So the worry, I guess the worry I was my from my point of view in that in that regard is that we become even more entrenched within capital it may be a different form than gdp but we still the suggestion still is that we can only experience well-being happiness through through growing capital and this is you know a particularly dangerous concept i think i was going to go to something else there but i think that that last point that you made is really interesting and links to this question around around human capital um, which mm. is obviously very central to the way that like Foucault and Foucauldian theorists understand the shift towards neoliberalism is like, you know, constructing this idea of human capital. And you you draw on it a lot in in your book. I'm now kind of thinking, so can you just talk to us a little bit about, I guess, just to kind of give give background and context why this idea of human mm. capital is so important to the shift towards neoliberalism, but also what role it plays within the utilitarian framework, because it almost becomes this thing of like, um, okay, we're going towards a kind of more conscious form of capitalism where we have Mm. to make sure that people's kind of health and well-being are prioritized and that people kind of can get an education and develop themselves. But because people are assets that we need to invest in. And a lot of people would kind of think of that way of thinking as relatively progressive. You know, it's often used as an argument Mm. against, say, austerity, right? We need to invest in human beings because they are the fundamental 
foundation of knowledge service-based economies. Why is it actually quite a kind of nefarious way of thinking about humanity? I guess to go back to the start of that question and again, a brief description of human capital, I'm sure many of your listeners might be aware of it, but on a very simple level, it's the recasting of, of the human being as basically as a, as a commodity, as a, as a, to see the self as a form of investment. So, um, and this is often a logic, say, to, to justify the hiking up of university fees or, or the like, the idea that when you make any decision you make in your life is an investment in your human capital. So, for instance, go to university, you're investing in your future self and your future skills that you might develop and your future capacity to accumulate capital, to, to have a good salary, to so on and so forth. What makes that quite nefarious is that that enables governments to argue that, well, if this is an investment in yourself and your human capital, this future, then you're responsible for the outcome of that investment. So you have to take on the risk of that investment. And on one level, it seems, as I think, as you said, like there are strands of kind of left left wing thoughts I mean, not so much left-wing thought, but left-wing politics, you know, new labour, um, uh, dare I say it, um, uh, the Keir Starmer era of labour um, that we're in the midst of, that would see human capital as a kind of positive concept, um, as as giving people power to, to shape their own lives, giving people the ability to be flexible and entrepreneurial you know Foucault's famous phrase of of under neoliberalism we become entrepreneurs of the self that the self becomes something to to be sold to be to be marketed and it's a phrase I use in the book I, I draw on the work of German media theorist Wing Chul Han who um he has this really nice formulation that um I find really useful and he argues that in the in this era of human capital we no longer operate as subjects, but as projects and always refashioning and reshaping ourselves because we have to, because we're always, we're trying to make a good investment in, in ourselves. And what makes this particularly problematic concept, I argue, is that there's a number of reasons why, why that's the case. One is that it, it changes how we think about our relationships with other people. Because if we all are pieces of human capital, then then on some level we operate like products or commodities and others become potential competitors as people who might undermine our investment in ourselves. And again, Bing Chuhan makes a really nice point where he says under this regime of human capital, it, it's almost impossible for us to have relationships that are free of purpose. And so it feels like everything that we do, um, we're either trying to gain something out of someone or they're trying to gain something out of us. And even if that's not the case, there is a kind of suspicion that that might be the case. So it leads to a kind of widespread, what I argue in the book, a widespread paranoia. And this feeds, therefore, into what has become quite popular in the 21st century is is a kind of form of self-branding. Uh, particularly it's been escalated, obviously, by the rise of social media. Um, and Jeff Bezos um, has this quote that that he 
saw as an extreme positive, and for me is one of is absolutely terrifying. Um, and he said that your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And to me, that's the sort of if that becomes the kind of common state of of being for many people in the world that we're constantly shaping ourselves as projects as as brands to be sold to others but we can never quite know what those others actually think of us we can never know what they're saying about us when we're not in the room that can only lead to a kind of paranoia a kind of paranoid community where everyone is kind of suspicious of the other suspicious that that either they're not buying into their brand or they're telling them they're buying into their brand or so on and so forth um well, actually, I'd be quite interested to hear your thoughts on human capital from a financial kind of angle. Yeah, I, yeah, it is interesting, actually. I think it, um, you can kind of, you can stretch the metaphor quite a lot, really, and think about, um, mm. you know, not not necessarily human beings as a commodity, which is, I suppose, something that's achieved in the kind of earlier phases of capitalism, yeah. but more the human being as an asset, um, yes. and the way that this kind of balance sheet mode of thinking becomes so central to the way that we think about the world under neoliberalism. Um, so, you know, the fact that under conditions of financialization, our own sense of our wealth is more dependent upon the relative value of our assets and liabilities rather than say, you know, a wage or, or any of those sorts yeah. of things. And the extension of that mode of thinking to the self as yeah as kind of you know as an asset as something that has its own internal balance sheet I suppose like what are my strengths how can I invest in those what are my liabilities and how are they related to my relationships like where where do I owe things where am I owed things um but not in a kind of solidaristic way in a pretty kind of transactional way um yeah you could you know think about the way in which we kind of try and leverage and almost like securitize those assets and relationships to generate new income streams. Yeah, I think it's a re- it's a really interesting concept. And yeah. I think particularly that stuff around, the, the, I think the place where it's perhaps most useful sociologically, well, maybe not most useful because <laughs> maybe it's not a good way of, of framing it, but certainly <laughs> in terms of the way that, um, that we think about financial capitalism. Yeah. is the the stuff that you were saying about risk. Because, I mean, particularly since the financial crisis, right, where we've moved towards mm. this form of kind of asset manager capitalism where the big yeah. driver of, of of deepening financialization is less like bank leverage, although obviously rising debt is a, is a massive thing, and more just like these big pools of, mm. um, of, of savings, of assets that are generally kind of in the pockets of the wealthiest, in inverted commas, stuck at the top of the economy and the the banks of of big corporations, um, how those are put to use in a world of stagnation and falling returns. And the dynamic is, of course, you know, exacerbated by central bank money creation and you get lots and lots Mm. of um, cash kind of pumped into financial markets, which reinforces this dynamic of asset price inflation. And it's all driven by this like desperate need for people to accumulate as many savings as possible to ensure themselves against risk, basically, because our whole you know, welfare state has just been, has been um, completely destroyed. So the idea of like both building up savings as an insurance policy against risk and the way that that affects the economy, but also like building up internal um, buffers and 
forms of capital, you know, forms of human capital that can insure you against risk uh, because, you know, you only have yourself to rely on and the impact that, that has on on the soul, I suppose, or on your psychological well-being yeah. is an interesting route. Yeah, and I that think that's really team. important. <laughs> yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think actually when I was using the term commodity, I actually meant asset, I think, in the yeah, context that yeah, you're using yeah. it. Yeah, that yeah. It, it's not commodity in the kind of classical mm. political economy sense of, of that. Um, and I think what's, you're right with neoliberalism, it's this, this kind of dual pressure that it puts on individuals in the sense that it's, it's constantly telling us, oh, you need to invest in your human capital, you need to take on more personal responsibility and so on and so forth. And at the, that same time, it's continually dismantling the kind of economic and social structures that can enable you to actually take on that responsibility or to mm. actually invest yourself in it in a way that's not risky. And it's this, you know, that kind of 2008, it's obviously kind of huge example of, of risk backfiring or, or mm. uh, of, um, and, but also the kind of post 2008 era of neoliberalism, what, you know, some have called kind of punitive neoliberalism or, Pierre Dardot and Christian Duval call it a kind of war against the population. And we've even seen an even more aggressive form of making people take personal responsibility without even suggesting that they might be better off in the future. It's basically, pers- you must take responsibility for this or else you have no other option. I have like several more questions already just about this like utilitarianism and capitalism, but we are going to run out of time and I want to talk a little bit more about <laughs> the title of your book futilitarianism so can you talk to us about how you think utilitarianism has slipped into this idea of futilitarianism uh yeah so obviously that's the the, the central concept of the book what i try to name of futilitarianism is is i think as i maybe suggested earlier kind of entrapment in 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 the pursuit of utility maximization one example I've always found really helpful, and I use it in the introduction to the book, and I guess it partly comes from my own experience as well, is that I see the university, and I don't want to want to be those classic academics that can only see the university as the only thing that happens in the world. But um, the university <laughs> is a good example on one level because it's, as has been well documented it relies now the kind of, kind of contemporary university relies so much on this kind of precarious labor force of of postgrads kind of students or post post phd um students who are doing the majority of teaching on these really exploitative short-term casual contracts um who are the kind of face of the university the ones interacting with students mostly on a daily basis and at the same time there are fewer and fewer jobs for this kind of growing precariat or intellectual precariat. So what happens, and I part of this myself, is that there there are occasionally jobs will come up, and there's a whole host of us all trying to maximize our, our utility in order to be in a position where we might get that job. So we you know publish articles, we take on teaching, we do whatever we can to make ourselves the most employable. But in doing so, the university realizes that there's this huge glut of 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 uh, highly skilled and highly qualified people who are all working, trying to work really hard 
to maximize your utility. And they realize that they can actually exploit that desire to not provide kind of secure jobs because they know that everyone. So what I'm arguing there is that if each of us are trying to maximize your utility to get this one job, one maybe one of us might be better off, but the majority of, majority of us are worse off. So the kind of collective and the collective well-being, the collective happiness is much less, is um, at least the greatest unhappiness of the greatest number. Um, and this is obviously an inversion of what the utilitarian philosophers told us what a good society would look like. And I think this has always been nascent within capitalism, uh, between the relationship between utilitarianism and capitalism. Um, this has been documented by others. Um, uh, Luke Boltanski, E. Chiapello's New Spirit of Capitalism, they um, critique the kind of incorporation of of a utilitarian measuring system into economic science in the, in the 19th century and the, the impact that has. But my argument is that it's been kind of unleashed by neoliberalism. Uh, precise, I guess perhaps you could argue on one level that under you know, social democracy, post-Second World War, on some level, there was a kind of protection of the well, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Um, but neoliberalism has really unleashed the problems that existed between utilitarians and capitalism to start with. And what it's what it's done is it's created it's and it's pushed people to it's demanded that people maximize their utility all the time. And yet it doesn't have to provide the kind of greatest happiness principle. Um, so it's managed to sever this relationship between kind of collective happiness and individual pursuits of utility maximization. Um, we talked, we touched on earlier kind of human capital. Human capital is another way of divorcing um, this relationship between individual pursuits of utility maximization and collective well-being. Um, so what what we're left with, therefore, I argue, is a futilitarianism, where where in in maximizing utility, we it, it leaves us in a position where we are more useless to to actually counter the the inequalities, the mass problems that face us, um, especially now leading kind of into the, in the twenty first century. So that futilitarianism is a kind of we're, we're trapped that we can only maximize utility. That's all we know to do. That's all we're forced to do. Yet in doing so, we're kind of haunted by this sense of utility that no matter how much I maximize my utility, it's not going to lead to this kind of collective well-being that, that many of us desire. You argue that the 2008 financial crisis was something of a turning point for futilitarianism. Why? So I think... I think particularly because of the turn in neoliberalism um, after 2008. So um, the turn towards a kind of more punitive form of neoliberalism, the rise of austerity politics, because it made it clear in 2008. And I pinpoint the speech by Obama, his um, inaugural, um, inaugural address in 2009, where he continually pulls on the rhetoric of responsibility the American citizens have a responsibility to themselves, to their country, so on and so forth. But what's really interesting about that speech is that there's absolutely no promise of of a kind of happiness or of of a, 
reward for these acts of personal responsibility. It's just simply at one point he says this is the price of citizenship. Essentially, that this is a simple, you just have to do this because you're a citizen of America. There's no sense. There is a, there's an acceptance in that speech from Obama that things are not good, that the future doesn't look bright. And I think post 2008, something that had been brewing under neoliberalism was that you know everyone was maximizing utility, especially as a result of the kind of dominance of of framing of human capital in society, with even with the hope that things might get better, that, that their lives might get better. And 2008 really removed that kind of hope. And what emerged in the aftermath was simply m- mass util- utility maximization was needed to, to regenerate the economy. But that was coupled with, with the complete dismantling of any kind of um, welfare and, and the passing of the responsibility of that crisis onto individuals who already were carrying such a kind of strong responsibility precisely because of of this of um neoliberalism's kind of impetus on personal responsibility and idea that we are a piece of human capital investing ourselves so what happened post 2008 really was a kind of intermingling of of something that existed pre-2008 which was already individuals maximizing utility on a hyper level but coupled with, as you know, Laval and Dardot call it, war against the population. So this kind of punitive form of neoliberalism, when um, combined with utility maximization, certainly um, increases. I suggest that the the flip or it, it, it concretizes the flip into futilitarianism, and I think where that goes from now, I'm not entirely sure. As a result of the pandemic. But it, yeah, I do, um, and I, of course, I'm not the only person to suggest that 2008 um, represented a shift. But I think, particularly in terms in in the context of of utility maximization, I think 2008 was a real seminal moment um, where the futilitarian condition became the majority condition for many people, or for the, for the majority of society. I I wanted to ask you about a, a quote that's in here where you say the real battleground today is not between capitalists and workers, but between oneself and the image of oneself, how one appeals to consumers in the market of human relations. And I kind of wanted to, to, to I suppose, challenge a little bit there because, yeah. you know, a lot of the, the work, let's say, um, that underpins these processes is inherently kind of exploitative. So, you know, let's say, thinking mm-hmm. about, I don't know, call center workers right you could argue that there's this tension between oneself and the image of oneself but there's also Mm. a tension of doing this emotional labor and being you know exploited and oppressed and denied one's autonomy in the process and then if we think much more broadly in terms of what goes on under the surface of the kind of digital economy whether that's amazon workers breaking Mm. arms in in warehouses or uh, these kind of groups of people working in um, horrendous conditions, moderating Facebook forums or whatever, there is still, like, especially if you look at the global level, what underpins the vast majority of working relationships, I suppose, is exploitation, even if it is less visible. So I'm wondering how you kind of jump from mm. this, like, yeah, very kind of astute observation around um 
around futility and the futilitarian condition to oh and this means that the the tension between workers and owners is Mm. is less uh live to clarify kind of what i meant that i mean in 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 using that um quote is in is in the context of the discussion about human capital um so i was thinking about that primarily on the level of the individual but i certainly certainly do not want to suggest that um there is no battle now between the workers and and capital um and as is increasingly shown in even recent weeks this really is the battle site i think what i'm trying to what i was trying to suggest there is is a way to that that the it feels like the primary battle that we experience as individuals is with ourselves. Mm, I see and what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's about a the try kind of subjective and element action. of it rather than the the necessary yes. the structural element of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. And what I get, and what really the aim of the book is to try and actually get us somehow outside of of that subjective element. Um. You know, I, I suggested earlier this idea of critique turned inwards, a way of trying to to deflect that critique outwards um, or even the anger outwards. Um, and so I certainly see the, the kind of I, I certainly don't want to suggest that this uh, conflict between capital and workers has deteriorated. And in fact, it's quite clear that it's escalated. And what what I the worry I have is that that we feel, you know, stuck or, or futile um, as individual workers in confronting that relationship between capital and the workers. Um, and it's only in collectivizing that we can actually confront capital on a kind of a level that actually might do something. And what we're really seeing recently is that actually collective action is hopeful. And there is, there's so many examples, I think, coming out now to show that we actually can transcend that kind of individual futility. And by transcending that individual futility, we can actually bring into existence more hopeful practices. Um, Because ultimately the book, although the concept of utilitarian sounds quite grim, it is, it is a kind of hopeful endeavor to try and, to try and name something that i think exists in society i think people can recognize to name it in a way that can help us actually think differently to 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 recognize that we all share an experience of futility and that that futility is not a defect of our individual characters which is what neoliberalism wants us to think they want it wants us to think that that futility is a representative of our bad investments in ourselves but what I'm actually trying to argue is that it's reflective of of the kind of economic social system we live in, and that we need to actually direct that anger towards that system. And the only way we can do that in a way that might actually be hopeful is through collective action. Now, I want to end on quite a big and mm-hmm. and thorny question that's linked to to your mm-hmm. last answer, um, which is: What do you think, as opposed to utilitarianism? What do you think would be um, a, a right or appropriate moral framework for a socialist movement and a socialist society? What well, one way is that uh, to I think enact a kind of 
to wrestle the idea of utility away from capitalism. Um, so we mm. talked a little bit earlier about utility being a kind of social relation to show that that actually the idea of utility does not need to be linked to uh, an accumulative society, a growth society, a society that generates profits. That utility actually is quite a simple concept that it can exist in the way that we relate with uh, with one another. That we can, there are, you know, examples of kind of you know in kind calculation or um, uh, uh, of a society that 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 I guess what what I'm trying stumbling to say is that um, yes. That utility does not necessarily have to exist within a capitalist society, and that's something that utilitarian philosophers made sure was the case that they only could imagine utility as as an an aspect of capitalism. And actually, what I'm really trying to do, particularly in the kind of conclusion of the book, is to try and show that this shared experience of utility should show us that actually trying to maximize utility within within capitalism has no benefit for us as a kind of species as a collective subject that actually utility can exist outside of capitalism can exist in in endeavors that do not necessarily have to be related to the accumulation of capital we can enact a, a struggle over utility um that that we can try and actually say this is how we define utility this is what we see as useful for us rather than what is useful for capital that i think is a probably a good place to end um <laughs> so thank you so much neil for joining me on this episode of a world twin it was really great uh, to chat to you about your book utilitarianism neoliberalism and the production of uselessness which listeners can buy using the link that we'll put in the description thanks again neil Thanks so much, Grace. I really appreciate it.